Welcome to episode three of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we catch up with Dan Infall, a man who needs no introduction. Dan has revolutionized techniques for hunting bedded bucks, revolutionized mobile hunting tactics, and he's also been gracious enough to share his incredible wealth of knowledge with thousands of other hunters via the huntingbeastforum.com. Dan also founded huntingbeastgear.com, a company that develops and produces mobile hunting gear specifically designed for mobile hunters. I personally owe nearly all my bow hunting success since 2014 to the lessons I've learned from Dan and the other members on the Hunting Beast Forum. In this podcast, we discuss Dan's influences, some bucks that were lucky enough to elude the big buck serial killer, how to determine if a bedding area with little sign is worth hunting, detailed kill examples from Dan's previous hunts, and what Dan plans to do different this year, as well as Dan's legacy on the hunting community. If you enjoy this podcast or the previous two podcasts, I'd appreciate it if you'd like the video, subscribe to my channel, or share with a friend. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors, the tree stand silencing store. Stealth Outdoors manufactures a variety of tree stand silencing equipment aimed at the mobile hunter, including climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and more. Head over to www.stealthoutdoors.com to check out the latest addition to the product line, Smoke Camo, a unique open pattern camo designed specifically to camouflage and conceal your tree stand at elevation. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Snark Media Agency, a digital-first agency focused on custom web design, specialized photo and video creation, and all things marketing. Visit www.snarkmediaagency to establish or expand your online presence. Web, photo, video, Snark Media Agency. All right, I'm excited to have the Wisconsin wild man, the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infall, on the show today. Dan, how's life been treating you in 2020? Great. How you been doing? Oh, pretty good. Excited to be out in, in Montana and, and doing a lot of new stuff and seeing a lot more bigger bucks than I'm used to seeing in Michigan, so a lot less pressure, too. It's been it's been a welcome change. You sure they're not elk? Uh, I've seen a couple of those, too. Yeah, those uh, those are actually pretty spooky, though. The whitetails seem to be a little calmer out here, and, and the mule deer are, are borderline tame. So Dan, we've uh, we've met twice previously. I don't know if you remember. Once in Michigan, once at Wisconsin, at your scouting workshops, and I wanted to give you an unsolicited plug here, and you know, and just let everyone know, Dan did not ask me to say this, but if anyone is considering attending one of your workshops in the future, I'd highly recommend it. I came out. I think I'd been on the beast about two years, and had been taking bow hunting more seriously for a, for a few years. And not to say that that was doing me any good, uh, taking it more seriously, but the hunting beast in the workshops definitely did. And they helped me connect a lot of the dots and the finer details of the things that I was reading, but not quite seeing in person with my own scouting. So I wanted to say thanks. And again, if anyone's thinking about that, check those out for sure. You still doing those, Dan? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good, good stuff there. Well, let's get started. The first thing I wanted to talk about is a young Dan Infault and your influences. I know I've listened to, to almost all of your podcasts and that you've said you're a student and a product of the woods, but just like some of the early hunting beast threads that contain a wealth of knowledge, I think there's some really important lessons kind of in the early days of mobile hunting. And I want to talk about two people specifically and just to see if you ever heard or read any of their stuff. And the first is Bob Frotsky. So I actually read one of his books called Taking Trophy Whitetails. 
and I looked it up. It, it came out in 1983. That was the year I was born. And uh, it's kind of interesting to me. Way back then, Bob was hauling his tree stand in and out of the woods. He was renting planes to fly over his hunting areas to take aerial photographs and stuff. Do you ever, did you know about Bob when you were getting started or ever read any of his stuff? I, I really didn't know much about him, Mom. I heard about him once or twice, seen him once or twice. I didn't read any of his stuff. Um, but, but really, anybody who was doing that kind of lifestyle back then was uh, really a different person. I mean, it, now people take that for granted. Uh, back in those days, there was, <laughs> you'd probably count for the guys in the country doing that on your, both your hands, you know, and your fingers. Yeah, and that's why I was curious because it seems like, you know, here's two guys in the Midwest and, and you're a little younger than Bob, but you guys kind of came to a lot of the same conclusions. And it was interesting to me to when I did learn about the hunting beast, this was years after I'd read the Bob Frotsky book that I was like, you know, this stuff must work. Here's here's two guys with a walls full of big bucks and they're they're doing a lot of the same stuff. So I guess that was one of the first things that really attracted me to hunting beast was well, here's here's some of those same techniques, and, and look at that. They're working on pressured ground again. And one other person I know you've mentioned before and is Miles Keller. And was he a big influence or an influence at all? And did you have any takeaway from, from Miles and, and the articles and, and stuff he did back in the day? Uh, he, he was definitely an influence. Um, uh, I looked up to the guy. I mean, you heard about him a lot back in those days. Um he was knocking down records all over the place. I mean, he would come to our state and hunt for a week and shoot the new state record. <laughs> you know, and then he'd go someplace else and do something amazing. Uh, he held the Wisconsin state record for a very, very long time with a giant eight-pointer eight um, he arrowed here. I met I met him several times um, at deer shows back in the early 80s and stuff, and uh, he used to always come to my booth and sit down and talk to me. And what impressed me about him is all the big hunters – would treat you like a peon, you know, and uh, they'd be looking around to see, you know, what fans are around or whatever while you're trying to talk to them, and you tell they're a lot about themselves. Miles was never like that. You Anybody could have a conversation with him, whether it was a little kid or anybody else, and he'd have his full attention. And what really caught me about him was he was um, he was very down-to-earth, like uh, the kind of guy who opens the door for a woman. He was very polite. If you asked him a question about hunting, he'd take the time to answer it. In a day when nobody would answer your questions, they'd tell you it's a secret. They didn't want you to know their secrets. A lot of that's changed nowadays. And that was one of my big things. So when I started this whole mission with the um, hunting beasts and stuff, it was to change that secret philosophy. That if we could share our tactics and stuff and make more people successful um, and bring more people into hunting and, and keep them in hunting, it would make the whole world better, in, in my eyes, for everybody. Um, it really wasn't a contest where it was with a lot of people. And Miles was one of the first people to really be like that. And I looked up to that. And that probably was a big influence in the way that I was always um, more giving because I always thought back to him and, you know, he treated me and stuff. And uh, to this day, we're still friends on Facebook. And every now and then we'll uh, we'll get in the chat. He's in his 70s now. He's pretty old. That's great to hear, and I'd say you're definitely carrying on that tradition. And, you know, there's a saying out there that's be the change you want to see in the world, and I think you're, you're living up to that if that was one of your goals for sure. Yeah. So one of the things I did in preparation for this podcast, and I think you saw, I put a, a thread up on the beast, 
and ask people to submit questions that they wanted to know. So we're going to get into some of those questions. And the first question, this was a real popular one. And I don't know if it's because you got a wall full of bucks and, and people want to know that, that you're mortal or what. But one of the real popular questions that kept, that kept coming up was, talk about some of the most memorable deer that got away. And I've got a few sub questions here. So if we, if we got to repeat any of those, we'll go through it. But think of your one or two really memorable deer that got away. And how long did you chase them? How many times did you see them? Did you ever get shots? And let's start there, and then we'll have a, one or two more follow-up questions. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question because I could give you a million of the ones that got away. <laughs> <laughs> that's bow hunting, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, um, uh, I've, I've had people tell me stuff like um, – well, you know, if I connected on every deer I got, I'd have a wall bigger than yours. Well, if I connected on every deer I ever got, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember back in my heyday, I'd, I'd do about uh, one out of four of a big buck gotten within range. I had a one in four chance of killing it. I remember figuring out the odds once by, you know, documenting everything in a, in a journal. Yep. Definitely more get away than, than you get. And, um, and maybe it's selective memory, but for me, it always seems like the very biggest ones the ones that get away. Uh, one that sticks out of my mind, uh, just off the top of my head, was a very large non-typical that I was hunting uh, right behind my house that lived in the public marsh. And that buck lived there for many years, and every year it got bigger. There's a guy down the street that, uh, back in those days, you could feed deer, now you can't. But he had a feeder in his yard, a big feeder. And every winter, that deer would winter there, and he had all the sheds from that deer. And that deer um, lived to be nine and a half years old, and every single year it was bigger. Uh, when it was finally killed by a hunter, it was 217 inches. Oh, wow. I hunted that deer hard, and I seen him shining a few times. I never caught him on a trail camera. And one time shining on the year he was killed, I saw him in a field and uh, actually got some film of him, but it's a little blurry because I was trying to run a spotlight and a camera at the same time. And I figured with him being there at like just after dark, he had to be bedded just over the grass hills into the, into the marsh. And there's one spot that I thought he could be in. And I went and set up there the next day and I had him get up out of that bedding area and come into me. And when he got uh, to about nine yards coming straight at me, he got behind this big willow tree. And I think he got a little bit of my uh, my order. I think it was uh, pooling. It was dead calm. But he didn't just run or bolt or snort. He just turned around and started walking straight away. And I just couldn't shoot. I, the tree was in my way. And that was the last time I saw him. And that, and that fall, a hunter on the other side of the swamp uh, shot him with a shotgun. And it was a good thing because when he got it, it had a broken leg. Uh, I suspect it was hit by a car or something, so it would not have made it through that winter. But it was nine and a half years old at that point. My follow-up question would be, this is uh, sounds like this has been some time ago, what would Dan Infault do today? And this was another question that came up. What would you do differently today that you didn't do at that time frame, if anything? Well, uh, you know, I know the bedding area is a little better, so I'd probably hunt a little you know, some different areas a little differently. Obviously, if I knew he was going to come by that tree, I'd move, <laughs> move a little to the side so the willow tree wasn't in the way. But uh, literally, probably nothing. I think probably I'd do worse now than I did then. And that's because um, 
you know, with age slows you down and uh, you don't have that drive as much. I think I put in a solid effort. I just didn't get them. And that's the way it is, you know. So I didn't have this, uh, you know, I sent you an outline, kind of what I was going to ask. I didn't have this on the outline, but I, I bring this up to some of my bow hunting friends, and I'd like to see if you agree or disagree. I have a saying that sometimes you can't win, right? You can do everything right. Your setup can be right. And, and sometimes things are just out of your control and there's no right move. Do you agree or disagree? That's absolutely true. I mean, and the opposite's the truth, too. I mean, I've, I've done things totally stupid, totally wrong, and somehow everything comes together and you, and you kill the buck of your dreams. And you sit there with your mouth hanging open going, what the hell just happened? And sometimes you do everything perfect and they, you just don't don't get them, you know. But you got to remember, um, those bucks, I mean, you're, you're going into their environment, their home, and these are animals that have lived for five years with people everywhere trying to kill them. You really got to be perfect on your setups and stuff to really, you know, even if you do it on accident and you think you're fumbling around, you got to do everything right, whether it's an accident or not, in, in order to really make something happen. And if you're just off a little bit, I mean, I really saw a change in my hunting as I really started to fine-tune and understand how close I could get to betting. There was so often that I'd see a deer or something, couldn't get a shot. I'd be just off or something. I got it to, to, to now where, where if I'm hunting a bedding area and that buck comes out, he's dead. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm going to get my shot. Right. Let's, let's put it like that. I'm going to get my shot. I mean, my setups are a lot more on spot, which ups my percentages. So I think a lot of people are just off, and I think they're just a little too shy to push that extra you know, 20, 30 yards. Often, you know, you got a whole forest out there. And I think back to the bucks I've killed, and you've got this huge swamp that this buck lives in. You narrow it down to a bedding area you think he's in. You give it a shot. Maybe he's not there. You move on. Next one, he's not there. Next one, he's not there. And you finally hit the one he's in. When I kill that buck, generally he gets up and makes a movement. Often it's, he's in a, um, a thick area with no trees you know, brushy, by the time he gets to the tree I can kill him out of, it's just about closing time, and any other tree wouldn't work, wind-wise or whatever. There's one tree in that whole freaking marsh where you can kill that deer that night. you got to be in the right tree with the right wind, the right day, the right time, and get everything perfect to kill that deer. And that's why bow hunting is such an exciting thing and it's such a fun thing for people because you work so hard, and then when you accomplish it, what you've really done, if you're really hunting a particular buck, is you've really accomplished a huge, a huge feat, and you'll never get credit from that from most people. But personally, it feels great, you know. Yeah, there's something about setting out really challenging goals and accomplishing them, and it seems like that the more difficult, the more challenging are. Like you said, that personal satisfaction it's hard to beat. Yep. One other buck I wanted to talk about, and I read a little bit of the story. I don't know if we ever got the full story or the conclusion, but I don't remember the year, but it's four or five years ago. You had a bear tag, and you were bear baiting, and you had a really nice buck show up on your bear bait that we started calling on the hunting beast the bear bait buck. So for those that don't know, that was the story there. Would you do anything different in regards to the bear bait buck now and, and kind of walk us through what happened with that buck and, and what the result was? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of regrets with that buck. There's a lot of things that I, I would, I, I just wish I would have hunted harder. Um, I think it was just recently uh, I was talking to Mario about that buck, and I says I wish I would have quit my job 
and just abandoned my family and lived up there for a month and hunted <laughs> <laughs> them down and killed them. Um, in hindsight, I'd have a hard time living with myself. But that buck, we were baiting. It was, uh, I think it was early June, and uh, I had some helpers with me. Chris Conroy and his uh, kids were were helping me uh, do the baits, and um, Chris Conroy had actually uh, suggested we go into this area. So we went in there, and uh, we're doing this bait, and uh, his kids go back to the uh, vehicle to get a couple buckets of bait while I'm setting up the camera and some stuff. And they come back, and they're like, hey, uh, a real big buck just walked across the uh, logging road in front of us. And I kind of laughed and said, there's no real big bucks right now. It's early June. They don't even have antlers. Right. And he says, well, this one did. It had, like, Coke cans coming out of its head. It's just big bases. And I was like, really? You know, I just kind of blew it off until we checked the camera the next week, and he's trying to eat the donuts, and there's this buck just like they described. And I kind of laughed it off at first and posted the pictures and stuff. And um, But then the trouble with that is it kept. I was still posting pictures, and it kept growing and growing and growing. And I was starting to regret posting them because I was thinking, hmm, you know, this is going to start causing a lot of attention because it kept growing and growing. And pretty soon it had 18 points you could count in the pictures. Yeah, that was an incredible buck. Yeah, it was easily over 200 inches. And it kept coming in, and would, uh, it would hang out by the bait until a bear would open it up, and then he would eat the pita bread, the donuts. The, uh, he, all the deer do that. They, they go in and hit your baits. And uh, that one in particular, you know, a lot of times there'd be a bear opening the bait, and you'd see him in the background of the picture staring at the bear, like waiting for him to leave. He's a real aggressive deer. And it got to the point where I'd go in and I'd bait that, and then I'd leave, and a couple minutes later, the, the buck would be there. Well, pretty soon it's getting uh, close to opening season. I mean, bear season opens like a week before, and I'm sitting there hee-hawing around. I, now I want to hunt this buck, but now I got a dilemma. I knew it was a you, you couldn't bait in the area, and um, I was like, well, what do I do? And I thought, well, if I have a bear tag, I could be hunting the bear and shoot a buck. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's within the legal limits, and, you know. Sure. So I, uh, I called the warden for the county. That was Clark County. It was Clark County National Forest, actually. And I called the warden up there, and I, I told him the dilemma. And I said, what do I got to do? If I got to remove the bait, I'll remove the bait. But I want to hunt this, this buck. And he said, Dan, if you have a bear tag and the bait is set up properly for bear, and you shoot that buck there, I don't care. And meanwhile, when I'm putting the bait in there, as I leave, that buck would be on the, on the camera 10 minutes later looking up the trail where I went. Hmm. So I'm thinking, I'm going to go in here opening day and, and give this a shot. Anyways, right there, let's see what happens. And on opening day, uh, I had two ways of going in there. The buck always came from open woods from a certain direction. And there was a thick spot behind the, behind the bait where I could sneak through this thick stuff to, to a tree and just slide up a tree and never go near the bait. And uh, I thought, you know what? He's used to me coming in there and baiting every day. I'll come in there and fill the bear bait. I'll climb the tree. So I did that. And within a few minutes, uh, I heard him walking down the hill. Um, There's a little bit, little tiny ridge. It was only like 10 feet elevation change. It was, kind of, it was just kind of like this flat land that just had a little bit of a roll to it. I hear him walking down the, the, the ridge. Well, you know, I don't know what's him at first, but it gets to 20 yards, and I can see him through a pine tree in front of me, and it's him. 
and he's got his ears alert, and he stops, and he's staring, scanning at everything, and he stomps. The wind's in my face. There's no way he smells me. But what he didn't see is he was bedding on top of that hill watching that bait, and I never left. So he was nervous about it. Let me stop you right there, and I want to ask because I know multiple times you've brought up that mature bucks will bed watching access trails, watching parking yep. lots. You think this is the same setup, but here he's watching the, your bait? Yep, and I should have known better. I should have known better because the way he was showing up on the bait right after I'd leave, he had to know I was there, right? Sounds like it. So he had to be watching me, and I, I should I should have known that. I thought he was uh, probably hearing me, and there was a, a, a heavy big rub line with his rubs obviously from the bait going up that hill and it was he walked right down that rub line to the bait so then uh he ended up snorting and running off and then from then on he got real nocturnal and he would just come in at night and then i just i abandoned uh the bear bait and started hunting them all over the place all the little bedding areas all around and i didn't know the area really well so i had to study maps and go in there and figure things out and then i ran across another hunter who was hunting in there, who had a giant pile of corn with a camera over it. So I uh, snuck around to the back side of the camera, opened it up, pulled the card on, and looked at the card, and he had a ton of pictures of that buck on it. So I put the card back and uh, knew he was hunting it. That guy, uh, when he saw my truck there, put a note on my truck that he was hunting the area, and then he put flags uh, around my, my bear bait. You'd see his tracks following my tracks, and he got really aggressive. Okay. Probably because he knew that buck was there, you know. Sure. Um, and I hopped around, tried to hunt him, and I, I, I don't think I spent enough time up there. I, uh, I seen just about every deer in the area that I had seen on my camera, except him hopping around. And then the the next year, I got one picture of him uh, on a trail camera just before hunting season, and uh, I went up and hunted him like crazy that that next year. And then I heard somebody had shot uh, a 200-inch buck in that uh, in that public land. And I'm sure it was him. And then he disappeared. So I hunted him for two seasons, but I only saw him with my eyes once. So sticking with the theme, what would you do different if you could go back? I would have hunted it harder. I would like to have uh, spent more time up there. I, I think that was a very killable deer. It was just it was a two-and-a-half-hour, well, three-hour drive from my house. I even went and hunted a couple of days after work and, and worked the next day. But I didn't I didn't um, spend enough time up there. I should have probably spent every weekend up there trying to kill that buck. Yeah, it makes it tough when you got a long drive like that. Yeah, and, and it's easy to say that in hindsight now. Well, no, those are, those are some great examples. Like I said, that was a popular question that kept coming up, and, and people want to know, Hey, one, do you ever fail? And I'm sure you do. Every, every bow hunter does, right? And the other thing they wanted to know is is what you do different. Yeah, you, I, I probably fail more than more than most people because I try more than most people. Uh, anybody who has a lot of success fails a lot. But then again, I don't really look at it as failure. Right. It's just, you know, it's the little stepping stones that take you to success. Yep, more opportunity equals more success. Well, let's move into talking about sign. And, and this is something, uh, I don't know, I'd describe myself as, as a journeyman beast, right? I've been on the beast for several years now, but I'm a pretty average hunter overall, still trying to get better. And this is something that 
has made sense to me more in the past couple of years where, where it didn't make sense at all, even though I read you say it a bunch of times. And that's talking about sign. And a lot of the hunters that I look up to kill in areas with little, and I'd say quote unquote traditional deer sign. And what I mean is rut sign, right? Like rubs and scrapes. There's little sign apart from maybe tracks. There might be good big buck rut sign in the larger general area, say that section or two or section around it. But the actual kill spots that a lot of these guys are killing deer have have very little rut type sign. So what is your personal experience been like with sign in your immediate kill locations? And when I say that, I mean, let's say within a 150 yard radius of your stand. So it's, it's kind of the flip of a coin. I mean, there, there's some factors that um, lead to that lack of sign. Main one being the number of big bucks you have on the property. I mean, if it's the only big buck, he doesn't have anybody to compete with. Nobody will try and bed in his area without his permission. He has no reason he has to scrape up the or rub up the area. But you know, if they're if in the same area, if he's bedding adjacent to does, he'll be marking up his area because of the does. But uh, a lot of the time, I kill real big bucks in spots that have very little sign. My very biggest buck, I watched him bed in the same spot for two years. And uh, I never found a scraper or rub within 100 yards of that bedding area. And I, I seen another, uh, a different huge buck come out of that bed. Um, not in the same lifespan of that buck, but never saw a rubber scrape anywhere near that bed. But there's been other spots where it's been rubbed up like crazy. Now, uh, you know, I look at uh, Dave's farm as a good example. Back around 2000, there's a lot of big bucks in the area. And there's one bedding area on that farm that every time there's a big buck there, that's where he's holed up. And there were rub lines coming in and out of that bedding area that made it real obvious where that bedding area is. It's not like that anymore. It's still where the biggest bucks in that farm come from, but there's no longer big rubs coming in and out of there. Every now and then, like last year, we saw five big bucks on the farm, and you started seeing some rubs in there. But when it's one or two, even though they're bedding there on a regular basis, you don't see the rubs and the scrapes and stuff. And the reason for that is, is they don't have to mark because they're not leaving a message for the other bucks. Rut-type sign, as you describe it, uh, rubs and scrapes, is uh, just as much to intimidate bucks as it is about does. A lot of times it's it's about uh, flexing the muscles, you know, uh, wearing the tank top or whatever. Right. They're uh, letting the other bucks know that, uh, hey, leave me alone. This is my area. Uh, are you going to get your ass kicked? So it really is relative to the number of bucks. And the reason that you look up to so many hunters that uh, don't see big buck signs in the areas they hunt, which goes contrary to what you read or you see on TV, is because the people you look up to are public land hunters that hunt in areas that don't have a lot of big bucks. So now, if I go and I scout people's properties that uh, are managed in really good areas, you go into those buck bedding areas, you can see them for a mile. I mean, there's rubble lines coming from every direction going in there. There's telephone pole-sized trees rubbed all around the beds. Because there's so many bucks there, they're competing. So it's kind of a catch-22. I mean, it, I wouldn't avoid a spot that had really good rut size. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, sometimes there would be a good bedding area and there's no sign, and it's better than one that's that's got a lot of sign if it's more like two-year-old sign. Because the two-year-olds, there's going to be more of them, and they are a very aggressive animal. As I've said before, they're like every age class is almost like a whole different animal as they grow. 
and that two-year-old's just starting to get his oats. And two into three, they're really aggressive animals that won't, you, you know, that uh, really are coming to their own. I mean, the two-year-olds really start to get get to start breeding and stuff, and are really competitive amongst each other, trying to establish themselves. And they will make rubs all around your bedding areas, even in lower populations. So the thing with that is, is that, you know, I think of all the bedding areas and um, the properties that I hunt, the properties I really know well, you know, like the, the marsh behind my house. I've killed a lot of big bucks back there, even though it's, you know, high pressure and stuff. It's just that I live here, so I hunt there a lot. And when I look at the mature bucks I've shot back there, they've come out of four or five bedding areas. And just about every mature <laughs> uh, confrontation with a buck in that particular marsh has come from one of those five spots, although I know of hundreds of bedding areas, and I can go into those other bedding areas and kill two-year-olds every year. Right. The mature bucks are taking the mature buck bedding. So if you're hunting spots with a lot of sign, but it's a two-year-old sign, that's what you're hunting is two-year-olds. You know, a, a big buck in there would scare those little ones out, and the sign wouldn't be there. Do you know what I mean? If there's one big buck around or two, if he was in there, those little bucks wouldn't be making all the mouths. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and that's why I wanted to bring up this point because it was a real hard sticking point for me to get over. If there's not sign in there, I think, oh, maybe don't hunt it. But if the bedding area, and I think you'll agree or maybe add to this, if the bedding area has everything it needs for a big buck and most of that on public land, high pressure states, is, is security and low pressure, then hunt it anyways, right? Even if you're not necessarily mm-hmm. seeing those rubs or scrapes, but, you know, try to look for that more subtle sign, the tracks and, and stuff that might clue you in. But it's it's definitely worth throwing a sit at still. Think about it like this, is if, if it's on heavy pressured public land and there's a mature buck out there that's lived to be five or six years old that you want to kill, how many people do you think hunt the spots where there's rubs all over the place and scrapes all over the place? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> Right, that buck wouldn't be five or six years old if that's where he's betting. No, that's that's a great point. That's just all there is to it. I mean, you you get to rut. I can't take a I can't take a walk in the woods during rut, and, and, and walk a quarter mile without walking under three people. How would a deer do it? I mean, there's a short little windows they can move in, and every place you see a patch of rubs, there's a guy sitting. Yeah, especially if it's dry. You know, those big bucks just aren't aren't living that lifestyle on, on pressured land all great points and that's exactly why i wanted to, to bring up this question so we, we did get some other questions from the forum and so these are kind of uh i think these are scenarios tailored towards the people who wrote them but i think they'll apply to a, a larger audience so i'm gonna go ahead and ask them anyways this first question has to do with big woods and it asked dan have you hunted and had any success in the north woods slash big woods do you still like to bed hunt if you're hunting the Northwoods? And if so, do you maybe back off the beds a little farther than you might in marshes or farm ground under the assumption that there's less pressure in the big woods and the deer might move a little earlier? I hunted big woods a lot when I was younger. Uh, and yeah, I had some success there with some pretty good bucks. And I still hunt pretty large parcels in, in big woods uh, and still have success there. Uh, I do still hunt um, bedding areas. I tend to, in big woods, like water. I like uh, rivers. Um, that get, you search for low areas where uh, low floodable areas that get heavy grass and brush and like uh, little dogwood channels going off into the woods. 
um, where you follow the river, get real remote, and really not have to walk through miles of, of timber. You just follow the river down into them spots. Um, I like uh, potholes that are isolated from the road where there's uh, little tiny swamps or marshes that are uh, isolated um, and not where somebody can see them from the road, that kind of stuff. And what about the back and farther off? Are you still trying to get in tight, or are you, or are you sitting maybe a little farther back than you would? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that I base that on, on, on each scenario. It doesn't matter where I'm at. It doesn't matter what the terrain is. I'm going to get as close as I can get to that buck without bumping, getting smelled, getting seen, getting heard. I'm going to try and get as close as I can. Now, that being said, in, in a mature big wood setting, a lot of times I do end up a little further back, especially if there's dry leaves or something, something like that, um, than I do in, say, a marsh setting or something like that. But a lot of times I am hunting marsh or swamp within that big woods. If you're just hunting in the open big woods, I think uh, there's an issue. I think the hardest one for me is when they're bedding in uh, um, clear cuts, because a lot of times they're bedding on the downwind sides, and you go up into the clear cut, and they're going to smell you, and you, you go downwind, they're looking into the open woods below. Those are some hard scenarios. Um, getting them off to the sides is good, or in the in the clear cut itself, uh, if they're feeding in there on like the aspens or something getting it to where the wind ain't blowing down a point on the opposite side because what they do is they, they bed the downwind side to those um, old slashings, you know? Yeah, kind of like how you talk about bucks bedding the downwind side of woodlots and farm country, same kind of setup, right? Yeah, they like to smell their escape travel. They'll escape through that thick, and they like to watch the open below, and uh, that's common in every terrain. That makes a lot of sense. So you, you mentioned aspens, and that's a good segue into the next question, which is the next Big Woods question here. If you're hunting a big woods area that doesn't offer any eggs and there's no good mast like oaks or apples, is there any specific food source or browse that you seek out without those two, you know, what, what would be the more commonly known food sources to deer hunters? Now, usually uh, young growth, clear cuts that are a few years old, uh, usually offer a lot of food. They eat a lot of uh, different plants. I mean, naming the exact plants would be hard. Sure. Um, a lot of times you don't even know what they're eating. I mean, there's a there's a plant that I've been watching my whole life. I still don't know what it is. I, I should take the time to learn it so I could spread the word. But there's this uh, green plant that I, I've been watching that grows in low, wet areas in dark woods that has an orange flower. And in September, man, does that attract the bucks. But I have no idea what plant it is. You know, <laughs> no they eat I. a variety of, of crap. And, uh, you know, I've even watched them go through cattails and, go down and, and get mushrooms and stuff out of the below where you didn't know anything was there just uh was it two years ago i had i put joe out in the marsh here on a big buck at the end of the season and he had he got film of the the box eating dry dead cattail leaves i've never seen that in my life but he had, he had film of it wow. you never really know what the, what, what they're going to eat but what you can do is look at where the sign is i mean the good the best food is obviously going to be clear cuts if you're in, in, in forested areas. So it's going to be younger growth of, of trees. It, someplace where there was a fire, someplace where they cut trees down and there's regrowth, any kind of regrowth, where it's young, young uh, brush. Like I said before, they like young aspen. But you don't really need that. What you need is to find a sign in the bedding. And if there's no deer there, there's no food around or whatever. But just keep moving. In big woods, it's really, um, at least in northern Wisconsin, 
and nowadays, it's really imperative that a guy keeps moving. We talk about hunting where there's no sign. I probably want to find sign in the big woods because you might have one mature buck every 10 miles. Right. So if you're hunting where there's no signs, what's the chance there's a deer there? So I, I go a little the opposite direction in, in that type of terrain, and I really seek out a buck to hunt. Because there's so few bucks, you got to be hunting a buck to kill one. For something else you asked, um, oh, big wood. Oh, the daytime movement. They do. I don't. I don't. Don't have a total grasp on it. But I have noticed that when I hunt northern Wisconsin, northern Minnesota, and I get up into the timbered areas, and I, I have a, I have a inkling to think it might have to do with wolves and nighttime predators and such. But there's a lot more daytime movement than there is. When you start getting down into the farming areas and uh, southern Wisconsin on down, they seem a lot more nocturnal and a lot more locked into that, uh, you know, last half an hour of light movement. Um, where you get up north, you see a lot of them walk around in daylight, midday, and it, it, it's kind of puzzling. But uh, I still push the bedding areas, and I still have a lot of success doing that. I just spend a little more time in stand. I get out there a little earlier. There's a lot of good tips there. You know, I got to think just from where I'm at now compared to Michigan. So being in Montana now, it's the same thing. And I got to believe it's all related to pressure. Just like northern Wisconsin, uh, I'm assuming, has a little less pressure than southern Wisconsin. The deer out here are moving a lot more, you know, before that last half hour, the, the first half hour of light, the, just the pressure lack of. And you see it moving a lot more. So let's move into to farm country. And this is a good question, and I think this applies to a lot of guys' situations, which is why I wanted to, to ask this one specifically. And the question is, Dan, what is your approach to hunting farm country if there's only one entrance point to the property and you'd have to walk through an open field? And my follow-up question will be, does this change if you only have evenings or only mornings, and how would the crop that's planted in that field affect your access you know beans versus corn per se so well uh, there's a couple of scenarios i can think of in my head and that, that the first one is do you really have only one access or are you talking one road access dave's farm has one side i can access on and it's open fields however it's a huge difference if i get to one far edge and take the tree line in or i go to the other far edge and take the tree line in or if i go in straight from the farm down the farm trail but it's still one side axis and it's only a quarter mile. But I can get around some deer by doing that, you know, coming in a little different. So that one axis uh, puzzles me a little bit. I mean, is it, is it only the property on 20 yards wide that you can only have one axis? Right. Or is it, uh, or are you talking, you got one, one roadside you can come in on and you're still only coming in from the farm, from the driveway. Um, you could come in from, you know, the west side of that road or the south side of that road or you, you, you know what i mean yep. the far end of the edges of the property so there's more than one way to access a property the next thing i would say is is um i would want to monitor that field before i hunt it i'd want to just sit back and watch that farm field see what, what's happening there um in the evening see what the deer do are they coming out where are they coming out at you know just give you any ideas where they'd be watching think about how a deer beds on a farm Farmland bedding is pretty specific, kind of like what we talked about with slashings. They bed the downwind side of where they bed, and they watch an opening. 
So it's really going to be wind specific on whether or not they're watching your access or how they're watching your access, right? Yep. So think about if the you know if you're going into a farm where uh, you're heading uh, say east, you know, south wind, where are those deer going to be bedding, watching you, going to be on a tree line where they're you know watching you. So if you if you got an idea where they're bedding. You can think about, well, they're watching you when, you when you're walking in at that bedding with the wind in your face, which I think is one of the hugest problems with farm hunters. They'll have like a field or a food, uh, food plot or something, and they'll, they'll wait till the day the wind's perfect for them where the wind's in their face, and they'll go out there, and then and then they won't see any deer, and they'll wonder why. I mean, he's on a camera all the time, and then they finally get the right wind, they go out there, he's not there. Well, he was there, but when you go out there, because the wind is blowing in your face, he's on that edge of the woods watching you, watching the opening, because he's going to smell the woods and look at the opening, right? right? So you'd be better off going in with the wind blowing at him from you. And that's because then he'll get up, come through that woods, and come to the food plot and, and eat or the, 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 the field or wherever you're, you're hunting. Um, none the wiser as long as your wind don't hit him. So then you're looking for that just off wind, right? So a lot of it has to do with wind direction. And the other one is, is watching the farm to see where they bed or scouting the farm, learning where they bed and getting good enough where you understand what what winds they're bedding where on. You're really looking for the details then. You're going to do some observation sits or some glassing, maybe some shining, and you're going to really pay attention to the wind direction when that buck that you're after is there. Right, or I'm going to have already scouted the property and know those things. If I don't know those things, I'm going to answer those questions before I go in and ruin it. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little older myself, and more and more I find out uh, patience kills. Right, right, right. You, you, know what, you, know what, you know what kills a guy is a lot of the guys who are probably listening to these podcasts really, really want success. They got that drive. They're probably the younger guys, and they can't imagine in their eyes wasting a day. But the knowledge you get out of the day will help you in the long run. And what happens is they go out there and they watch and they see that buck coming out and and they see what wind it is and they go in there and they do everything right and the buck don't show up there. He shows up over a little bit and busts them and they're like, well, this was stupid. But in reality, most of the time you go in there and you set up and the buck does something different the day you, you hunt, different than you expect. So maybe it's a one out of four chance that he comes out where he's supposed to i kind of like those odds if i have a one in four chance of killing a buck every time i go hunting you know what i mean but they're looking at that one failure and saying or two failures and saying well screw this i'm not doing this no more you really got it you gotta uh, believe in what you're doing and just keep working and working and working on it. like we discussed earlier i mean it's a it's a lot of failures to get a success so you, you you're really taking your best move to get to the perfect tree. Remember, again, I mean, there's one or two trees in that whole farm where you can kill that buck in daylight. And if you go there and he and it's a different tree that day, that's just odds, man. So you take your best bet by sitting back and watching. That doesn't mean it's going to work out every time. And it doesn't even mean it's going to work out most of the time. But odds-wise, it's going to work out more often and if you just go bumble through the woods and go set up on, on a rub line or something, you know what I mean? And spook everything out of there. I couldn't agree more. That, and that's, that's how I try to hunt and how I've tried to develop my hunting style is, is every little edge you can get, you know, like you said, 
I'll take one in four over one in 10 or, or I'll take one in 10 over one in 20 that the goal is to, to stack more and more odds in your favor every time. A lot of the things we do might up our, our, our odds of killing a deer by a half a percent or maybe a quarter of a percent. You might think it's what, you know, but take that times uh, 80 things and look at what kind of percentage I have over the other guy. Yeah, exactly. It, those those little details, and and that's why you know that's why I like listening to podcasts, and that's why I'm doing the podcast now because it seems like every time I listen to a good one, I pick up a nugget. And I was talking to my buddy about that. I'm like, you know, a lot of this information, especially for people of the beast, is going to be stuff that's already been covered. But it seems like every time there's a couple of nuggets, it's like I didn't realize that, or or I forgot about that. And it's great to hear that stuff and give you those little edges. And that's that's how you get, I think, to be a consistent killer is just accumulating those little edges over time right well let's move into a very specific question about hill country and this came from a a well-known beast member who wishes to remain anonymous the question is dan the last three years i've encountered odd midday bed transitions this has happened with two separate bucks in two different counties these two bucks have a similar habit They both are completely relocating beds during the late morning hours. Cameras show relocation times between 10 and 11 a.m. Both bucks are both bedding in secure, wind-based beds not far from food. And both both bucks appear to also be moving hundreds of yards away from the pre-dawn bedding location on days with no apparent shift in the wind direction or obvious predator or human intrusion. I'm baffled by it. Dan, what's your take? Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, I think most bucks make midday shifts. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with thermals, not wind direction. Um, but that part of a distance is odd. Uh, it might have to do with uh, what you have there for bedding. Um, regardless, you get a uh, sign that he's doing that, and that's something you can kill him on, and I'd make the move to kill him. I mean, there's, it, it's pretty often you see deer do stuff that makes you scratch your head. I can guarantee you that um, I'm sure Buck ain't doing anything uh, half-assed. There's there's a reason. We just probably don't know the reason. I think it's probably because of the thermal change, thermal wind change midday. When it gets hot out, something's changing the thermals, and it's probably rendering that bedding area uh, useless for the day, and he's moving over to the other one. Uh, kind of surprising that he has two deer like that, but that does happen. I mean, I've seen wind shifts that move deer quite a ways, uh, especially if the wind changes directions, but he said it didn't change directions. I would have to think it's a thermal, something going on with the thermals would be my guess. I don't have all the answers to that. Yeah, thermal seems like a pretty likely explanation, especially at that time of the day, because that's when it would be heating pretty good, you know, 10, 11, and really start to suck up the hills there. Right, and then that's only just a, an educated guess of because of what I've seen over time. I mean, the only one that knows the real answer is probably the deer that's moving. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some uh, some what I think are, are fun questions here, and these also came in from the forum. And what, the next question is, why don't we ever see posts from Dan on the forum looking for advice on how to hunt a spot or particular deer? Help me understand, is it, am I asking somebody else for help, or am I helping uh, doing a post on for somebody else no no it's it's you're hunting an area and why don't you ask for help on how to figure out a deer or an area i guess is the question why don't i ask for help yeah i don't know i usually seem to um 
think I got it all figured out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean I do. But <laughs> right. Confidence, right, goes back. I know I've heard you talk about confidence a ton, and if you're confident in what you're doing, then, then uh, you're probably not yeah. looking for a whole lot of help. Okay, well, on to the next question here. Have you learned anything from anyone on the forum? And if so, did that lesson help you kill a buck? Yeah, you know, um, I used to learn a lot of stuff on, on the forum. I don't know that I do it as much now because I'm just so damn busy with uh, other stuff. You know, off the top of my head, there's one thing I can remember learning. Uh, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot more that I'm forgetting that I'd remember if I saw it. But one thing, uh, uh, somebody did a study on uh, deer beds. I mean, there's for a while there, I don't know if you were on the forum yet, probably, probably right about when you came on, people started putting uh, cameras over deer beds all over the place. Like, it got to be the new trend because of <laughs> they got so excited about this style of hunting. Yeah. And uh, uh, one series of pictures that, uh, that got posted, a guy had these really big worn-out beds with big rubs on them. Uh, on the edge of a field and, and some thick stuff, you know, and I'm thinking they're watching the field and whatever, and what wind are they going to be on? And he goes in there and puts cameras in there and he gets the big bucks on camera bedded all at night. Here there were night beds and it taught me that those night beds are more specific to spots than I thought they were. Uh, you know, and, and it really opened my eyes to why certain beds I was hunting never panned out. I was, I was actually probably hunting night beds. What a night bed is, for those that don't know, is, is it's a spot after a deer feeds in the evening. He goes back and lays back down and chews his cut. My perception was it was more like they'd lay off to the side in a field or something like that or some grass. But now, but now after seeing those pictures, it educated me, and I started learning a little more. And thinking about it, it makes perfect sense because, you know, if they bed for safety during the day, why wouldn't they bed for safety when they bed to chew their cud, right? Yeah. So, so uh, that's one thing I learned from uh, the camera studies that people did on the, uh, on the forum. And I guess if I learn things on the forum, and this is probably bad of me, but I always take stuff with a grain of salt when somebody says it. Like I, I like to see a series of people saying the same thing or seeing the same thing, or I like to see a study on it uh, or see something with my own eyes, like camera pictures or um and I guess that's just me, but yeah, I'm sure I learn things uh, all the time from people on the, on the forum. It's just hard to put something, my thumb on something at the moment. Yeah. Well, and I think you're saying you want to see multiple observations of something before you take it as a fact is just like when you hear someone say they saw a big buck, right? You don't know if that person's ever saw a 120 inch buck in their life and maybe that's the biggest buck they've ever seen. So it's good to hear it from a few people or get your own Intel before you go whole, whole in on something. Right. And you, you got to remember too, um, uh, I've been doing this a long time and you see a lot of guys that are just like, um, I hate to say this, I don't want to offend anybody, but, uh, keyboard hunters, I mean, they, they don't really hunt. They're just guys online who give advice. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, they, they have bare walls. I mean, they, they might've shot a hundred inch eight pointer once on, on their uncle's farm, but they really don't have anything under their belt and they're telling other people what they have to do to shoot uh shoot multiple Boone and Crockett's in the next 10 years right. you know not every not everybody knows what they're talking about even though they portray themselves as that it's just like uh there used to be a day when like when I was younger where you had to prove yourself before anybody would even listen to you yeah and now it's it gets confusing because everybody's got you know it's real easy to set up a, a page or 
to put out a profile, you know, and put out a bunch of information. And you just see a lot of people that don't know what you're talking about. And another thing I see is, um, not to go off on a tangent, but you see these guys that are like famous hunters, you know, and, and uh, Mark Anthony comes to, to mind. And I just looked at his hunting tactics, and I'm like, how can that be working? How can he kill more Boone and Crackers than anybody in the world hunting like that? It doesn't even make sense to me. Well, that's because I've been hunting enough in my days that something stinks. I can smell it. And, and you know, sure enough, then you see the guy get busted. And it seems to happen every time you smell a little crap when somebody's telling you something. All of a sudden, you see them later on get, you know, busted because of their greed for killing big bucks. They're doing something illegal. Yeah. You know, so not everything everybody's doing or, or even people that are highly looked up to, it doesn't really mean that they're honorable and honest people. And uh, we see that over and over again. Yep. Internet gives everybody a platform. And whether, like you said, whether you know anything or not, then you, you still got a voice. Right. So the, the next question that came in has to do with uh, your scouting services. And someone was curious one, if you're still doing scouting services, because I think there's an ad on the page. And if you are, they were just curious, how many times a year do you go out to scout someone's property or different clients, I guess? Uh, I, I do um, four or five a year. For a while there, I was doing like 20. I probably get over 100 calls a year. Uh, I turn most of them down or I just don't have the time. Um, if I do them on the weekends, I'm, uh, I don't have a life. So I'll go out on a weekend or two, you know, during the prime times to scout some people's property. I actually like doing it. What I really like to do is get more full time into into to hunt and beast and just dump the job I have, the full time job. But then again, half the time I give my services away. I mean, I have somebody call me up and they get <laughs> some sob story and I just go help them. <laughs> it's just me. I mean, really, uh, what I want to do with what I'm doing is is help people and make them better hunters and, and uh, make them have a more enjoyable life. And uh, something about charging people just kind of sits a little off with me, but I need to do it in order to <laughs> find a time so it's a catch-22. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons you've been so popular and, and why so many people can relate to you because it's it's obvious, at least to me, or I think most people that have hung around the hunting beast any amount of time that you just got a genuine interest in helping people out, and, and that's a – you know, it's really important to you. So I, I can definitely see that, but still got bills to pay like everybody else, I imagine. Right. Well, on behalf of everyone listening, thanks for doing what you're doing. And a lot of hunters wouldn't be where they're at without all the knowledge and information that you've shared. The next question talks about wind and thermals. And specifically, if you can think back in your hunting career, when did you really start figuring out the nuances of thermals just off winds? I've heard you talk on other podcasts about, you know, stagnant bodies of water, having a thermal pull. How did you start even figuring that stuff out to begin with? And, and how'd that really influence your success going forward? I think most of that stuff um, uh, really started coming to light for me in the um, early 90s when um, I just started going nuts as a hunter and just traveling all over the place and really um, making detailed journals and, uh, really studying what was going on around me, wanting answers for everything, and uh, and just figuring those answers out on my own. Milkweed was huge. Um, that taught me a lot about the thermals and stuff. But uh, 
it was really just being out there so much and wanting it so bad that uh, I learned a lot. I traveled around a lot. I think that's a big thing with, um, I just recently did a blog on that, on guys that just sit on the same farm and think you're a great hunter, you know. Uh, if you just hunt that one property where you can have success every year and you can, you can break about a great share, awesome. You know, I mean, I'm not knocking it, but if, if, if you don't move around and um, hunt different areas, it's if you don't grow as a hunter, you, you don't become better. It's like the race car driver that can only beat somebody on one track. So it's only race track. He, he, he runs, you know, you grow as a hunter by getting outside of your little box. That's what happened with me is I just, I hunted all over the place. I get bored with the property. I've got um, bedding areas and the marshes around my and swamps around my house that I know if I went in there in the right timing, I could kill a good buck. And I get bored of it. I don't even want to go over there. I, I just got this thing where I want to go find a new one. I want to go find a new property, go learn it. And every time you try something new, you learn different things. You try a different tree. You learn how the wind goes through woods in that area. You, you learn what you did wrong. You make a mistake. You learn from it. So by going out and pushing the envelope and trying new things, and, you, you know, I just I had somebody tell me a, a, a story, uh, I think it was this morning at work. A guy came over and he says, uh, he, he says, hey, I, I know you, you know, he's some truck driver or something. And he says, uh, he says, you know, um, he says, I was following all your crap. And he says, I've been believing on in this stuff. And he goes, and don't take this wrong. I still believe in it. And this is an older guy. He says, and, uh, he says, I thought, man, I want to, you know, I want to do this. I hunt the same farm all the time. And I'm, you know, I kill good bucks, but there's, there's going to be bigger ones in the public land. Like you say, you spread out, you might find something even bigger. He says, so I went out scouting. He says, and I got out in the swamp and I couldn't even get out of it. I was so tangled up in there. I just wanted to die. And I thought, <laughs> this is what beast style hunting is. <laughs> he goes, you sure don't portray that right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I had to laugh because he's, he's right. I mean, we talk about the fun times, the good times, but I've been, I've been out there so, <laughs> where you feel like that, you know? And uh, uh, it's true, though. By putting yourself out there, you get a better perspective of, of what hunting's about. And it's about, uh, you, you know, trying new properties and testing your abilities and testing your skills is what grows you. It's what, it, what makes you a better person, a better hunter, and, uh, you know, just a more rounded outdoorsman that's what taught me all that stuff i couldn't agree more too and, and you really have to love the process and the journey and and not just the success or the result or you're, you're not gonna last i mean i'm sure you've seen it i pay attention there's there's been a lot of guys come and go even since i've joined the the hunting beast and and you can tell sometimes like oh there's a guy this guy's gonna be around for a long time and and he is right well last question here and I think you'll enjoy this one and I'll preface it with who wrote it, which is Ed Cyclopedia from the beast. Oh and boy. He writes, Dan, if you were born rich instead of good looking, would you still remember the beast? I'd remember the beast. But I don't think the beast would remember me. If I was born rich, I probably wouldn't be who I am. That, uh, being born poor and, uh, growing up in the environment I grew up up in is what, made me who I am and and uh what made um people like Ed love me so much <laughs> <laughs> he's always good for a laugh that's for sure yeah all right in this next segment I'm gonna read a word and I want to do like a word association so 
When I say the word, I want you to say what's the most important thing a hunter should focus on in either one word or one sentence. So here we go. Spring. Scouting. Summer. <laughs> You're going to get the same answer for just about every one of these. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Scouting. Fall. Mm, scouting. Winter. Scouting. Early season. Scouting. Rut. Ah, uh, scouting. And then late season? Scouting and food. Okay, so it's scout, <laughs> scouting and food. So I didn't have this on the outline, but obviously that's important. And you mentioned it during during hunting season, fall, scouting. So this wasn't on the outline, but talk about in-season scouting because I think at least from what I've read and, and some of the responses and questions I see on the hunting beast, a lot of guys are still apprehensive to get out there and, and do what I would consider some aggressive in-season scouting. Talk about how you do that and how important that is to, you know, your success. There's, there's two kinds of in-season scouting. The first one's boring and I'll just do it real quick. And that's if you kill your buck and you're tagged out, that is the best time to scout. Because now you can go learn those bedding areas in season, in, in real time, when you're going to hunt it the next year instead of after season, right? So you don't have to worry about spooking deer because you're going to be, you know, you're done hunting. And let me stop you right there real quick. If you're tagged out and you're doing this in-season scouting, are you ever purposely trying to jump bucks? Like, are you walking slow trying to jump bucks out of bedding to find out exactly where they're at? Sure, I'll try sneaking in there and, and, and getting an eyeball on them. If I can, you know, most of the time they're set up so well, they, they're all there before you get in there, but occasionally you get an eyeball on them. All right. So that was the boring scouting. What's the more exciting scouting in season? The more exciting scouting in season, you know, what your listeners probably want to hear about is seeking out, finding sign and hunting it fresh. There's several ways you can do that. I mean, you can uh, spot check a property, go in there and just see if there's sign. Walk the old flats, see if there's rubs, see how big they are. I walk the field edges, see if there's some big tracks, and then start moving into, you know, bedding areas from there. I mean, you can do that in the middle of the day. You can, you know, stop on your way home from work and walk a walk field edge. You do all kinds of stuff. Um, but people tend to not do that during season. Another thing I do is I never go from parking lot to hunting spot taking the trail everybody else takes. I plan a route. And I walk a transition line. I try to you know, see if there's any good sign coming out or going in. Um, if I hit hot sign, you know, big rub still bleeding or something, you know, on, on a trail coming in and out of a, a what looks to be bedding, my plans just change. I mean, there's a good chance I don't make it to the tree I was planning on going to. But I usually do have a plan, you know. Or I get to the, the tree I want to be at, and I don't like what I see. And that happens, too. I just keep going. I got a plan B. There's someplace else I go to. But I do a lot of scouting, uh, in season, out of season, all the time. And I have found a direct correlation with how successful I am based on how much I scout. The less I scout in season, the less action I have. Yeah, and that's one of my big takeaways. I want to go back to what you said earlier about hunting new terrains and challenging yourself. So I've had a little more success uh, definitely since joining the Beast, and particularly the last few years. And I've hunted out of state a lot more the last couple of years. And, and my single biggest takeaway, and, and everybody that I talk to that's either new to out-of-state hunting or is thinking about hunting, what I tell them is 
don't be afraid to spend an entire day scouting, even if you only got a four or five day trip, because once you find that sign and you find those deer, then you're in the game. You know, and I'd rather spend a whole mm -hmm. whole day or two getting in the game than sitting around mm -hmm. waiting for maybe the game to come to me, which which rarely happens. So I, I, I don't think you can emphasize that enough. You, you got to be there. You got to find that stuff first. You know, I go on a road trip in rut. I see a lot of other guys or I go hunting with guys and I see what they do. And they'll map out spots and they'll go sit those spots religiously, no matter what they look like, and have the mindset that it's rut. I have to sit that tree all day long for the whole whole day. And the next day they'll go to some other place. They don't even know where they're going because they haven't been there before. And how can you hunt like that? I mean, so I get there and I'll have a predetermined spot. I'll go there and I'll hunt that evening, the day we arrive, or, or that morning. And then when I get done hunting in the morning, I'm going on a scouting trip and I'm going to scout. I'm going to check some spots that I had looked at on maps. I'm going to find, uh, I'm going to look at some different areas and the very best one I'm going to go back to and I'm going to hunt that spot fresh where I haven't been to before or before that deer goes through there. Um, so if I, you know, if I scout and don't come back for two days, the deer's going to go through there and smell that I was there, right? So that day, I'm, during the daytime, I'm going to go scout around a bit and put myself in a better position. And some people are like, well, it's rot. A deer can come running by at any time. Only carry your bow with you. Maybe one will run by you. Yeah. But you got to pick some time frame to scout because scouting is that important. Just sitting in a tree is not important. Everybody just sits in trees. How many bucks are they killing? Yeah. To be, to be super successful, you have to get out and do a scout, and you have to put yourself in the right position. And I don't think we can overemphasize that point enough. Like you said, guys, especially, and, I've, and I'm talking for myself here, I fell into this too. You don't want to quote unquote waste a day, right? You want to be out there maximizing every hour you have to hunt. So you're hunting instead of spending some of that time to find where you should be hunting. And that's a huge piece of the puzzle. And that's, that's the thing I've found out, especially the last two, three years, that's led to a lot more success for me personally. Yeah, I've had uh, people tell me that they've got uh, two or three weeks of vacation, so they're going hunting for a week, and uh, that's all they have. They don't have time to scout. And I always say, um, you know, if you took three days for your hunting vacation and took the other three days and went in spring and scouted it first, your three days would be way better than that six days. Yeah, no, that's that's the truth. It's you know that's a, an investment that definitely pays off and. And, it, and if you're not doing that, you're, you're handicapping yourself. I, I firmly believe that. Yeah, most people have a weekend or two. Take a weekend and go down, or a long weekend, three days, and go down to scout the place the spring before you're going to go. It really isn't that hard. And uh, if you really enjoy this lifestyle and you really like the hunting and you're really the person you portray yourself as, as somebody who, who likes to earn the bucks they kill, go out and earn it. You know, take, take a few days and enjoy it because I'm to the point in my, in my life and I'm not, and I haven't always been there, but I am now where I can enjoy a three day scouting trip as much as I can enjoy a hunting trip. I'm just at awe every time I'm in, in, in the wilderness, every time I'm, you know, out there learning new things, and visiting new properties. I, it's exciting. And I think actually the scouting is more exciting than the hunting. The hunting is just a payoff where you see if your scouting worked. Yeah, you see a lot of guys say that too. I think a lot of the, a lot of the the more hardcore guys that that are killing a lot of deer that they really enjoy the scouting and and I think you have to that goes hand in hand with success, obviously. You know, it's kind of funny, and and uh, I'll probably take some heat for this, but I'm the kind of guy who um, 
I'll hunt, I'll be obsessive over a deer and I'll kill that deer and I'll have my moment, you know, a couple hours, I'll show some friends, I'll send some pictures out. And it's kind of like it goes to the taxidermist and I'm out searching for the next one. And it, it's kind of forgotten about. Honest, honest to God, I mean, I don't go back and stare at my mounts or, you know, look at my past or even think about the past. All I'm thinking about is the next victim. And it's that drive. Um, it's the hunt. I could care less about the kill. And it took me years to learn that. It's really about the next one. No matter where you're at, if you just killed it or you haven't killed one in two years, it's about the next one. And it's about the journey to get there. And if your journey is only sitting in the tree until you kill a deer, you're missing out on some of the best parts of it. you got to earn that deer by, by going out and figuring it out. And you'll definitely be better. I mean, if these guys are looking for shortcuts, that's your shortcut. Split up your, your week-long hunt into three days and three days and two, three days scouting in the spring and three days hunting in the fall, and you'll do a lot better than doing a six-day hunting, hunting trip. Yeah, like I said, I, I couldn't agree more, and that's why I wanted to, to harp on this point, especially about the in-season scouting is, you know, don't be afraid to get out there and get that information. And, and if you're hunting beast style, right, if you're not in one of those spots, then, then presumably you've already scouted a few other areas. And go go check those out and find the one that's hot and then, and then throw a stand at it. Right. One of the other questions that came in highly requested was – kill examples and guys want you to dive into the details of maybe one or two of the trickiest or or longest puzzles that you had to figure out to kill a buck and specifically if we could start from the beginning and we'd, we'd like to hear how your mindset and your tactics maybe changed or evolved as you pursued these bucks over time and and any big aha moments you had hmm I think the biggest one uh, that comes to mind is a buck I killed in uh, 1989. That buck, uh, I had hunted it for several years. At that time frame, we didn't see many big bucks where I was where I was at. A two-year-old was a, was a was a good buck, and if you shot a decent eight-pointer, like a two-year-old eight-pointer, all summer people would be slapping you on the back. Hey, I heard you got a good buck. You know. Yeah. Um, this buck, as a year and a half old, grew, grew a 10-point rack. That's pretty rare. Yeah. And it was a small 10-point rack, but it was a 10-point rack. And uh, I seen it a couple times. It didn't get killed. It, it actually survived. And I ended up the next fall or the next spring picking up one of the shed antlers. Um, and then that, that next year, as a two-year-old, he, he was uh, pushing Pope and Young. He was probably 130s or something. And uh, I really wanted to kill him. And I started putting that as like a goal. And uh, I kept hopping around trying to hunt him. And, and I'd get glimpses of him. I'd see him. But I was always off a little bit. And uh, the season ended without me getting him. Um, but I had a few, a, a few opportunities that I blew. Being younger and greener, I tried some things like putting out uh, Central. I remember he was coming out of a bedding area. And he was going through a tree line. And there was like four or five trails he could come out. And I was glassing him doing this. And I was like, he goes out and he gets to a point where he, when he finally goes to a spot where you can kill him in this little tree line, he splits up in these trails and it seems random which trail he's down. So I thought, well, he, it seems like he goes like the furthest one down the most. So I thought, I'm going to go in there and blow this. I'm going to, you know, try something. So I, uh, I tried taking it and making like a scent drag, you know, 
it's probably like the last time I ever did a scent. <laughs> <laughs> Anything with scent was in 1989. But I took this uh, like rag or something and I soaked it with scent. And I walked from the, you know, this field across all those trails to the tree that I wanted to hunt. I figured, well, okay, if he comes on one of those other trails, let's see if he follows the scent trail, right? So lo and hold, out comes that buck, and he walks down one of the other trails, and he hits that scent drag and follows it back to where I came from. <laughs> the other way. I remember that. No, oh, tracked it the wrong ways, huh? Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> uh, I picked up a shed off of him that year, too, uh, after not getting him. And, but I went on a mission. I wanted to kill that buck then. You know, I thought, what do I got to do? So I started, you know, really concentrating on the bedding areas. And, and that was the deer that kind of really put me in that mindset more so. Now, I had noticed that you see deer come out of a woodlot, you move closer, you're more likely to kill them in daylight. So I knew enough to, you needed to be close to bedding. But I started thinking, well, I need to learn the bedding more. I started looking a little more at the spring scouting started learning all the bedding areas and stuff a little more. And that particular year, that buck grew uh, probably a mid-140s, 10-point rack, uh, which was a huge deer in those days. That's a huge deer in these days to me. (laughs) Right. I really wanted to kill him. I thought that was going to be my year. And and generally, I'd find out about a buck and just go out and kill it. So it was a little bit more of a, uh, a humbling experience that this thing was beating me. At the same time, I always brought home deer for the family to eat. And my dad was like, well, you're not shooting deer. What's going on? Well, I want to kill this buck. And he, he would be kind of pissy about it. And he'd be like, I'd come home. He'd be like, oh, you have an antler soup again? In other words, you know, <laughs> we could eat my dreams or whatever, you know. <laughs> so I ended up, um, had that buck come out of a bedding area and come past me at 40 yards and, uh, I winged it and actually hit it in the ass and uh, didn't recover it. Searched and searched and searched and couldn't find it. and was worried and worried and worried. Now, is this the second year or the, or the third year that you'd hunted this deer? This is the this is uh, the third year hunting. Okay. So then uh, I've seen him a few times that year. I got real close. Uh, one time uh, I heard a big fight. So this would have been 1988 going down in, uh, in this valley. It was right behind uh, my house, so I ran in. I got my antlers, and I ran up this tree line, got up above them, and got up in this tree and, and beat some antlers back at them. The fight stopped, and I heard marching coming towards me, and I couldn't see through the tree line. And, and then all of a sudden, that buck came out right underneath me, looked up at me, saw me, and ran, and uh, didn't get a chance again. Didn't get a shot, and I had a shot and didn't take it. I waited for him to get into the open field. I remember regretting that so much. I had a I had a decent shot and thought, no, I'm going to wait till he gets in the field. I have a clean shot at 10 yards, but I had a 10 yard shot through brush where I had a hole the size of a basketball. I should have took. Right. Um, but didn't expect him to look up. I mean, it's one of those things of growing. I mean, those little things are important too, because that's what makes you learn. First ethical shot you take. You have that happen once or twice or three times, and all of a sudden you start to real, realize something. And if you know a guy that's had that happen 15 times, well, he's an idiot. Yeah. You, you have to learn and you have to adapt. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not necessarily that you're forcing bad shots, but sometimes you get a shot that will kill that's not a textbook perfect shot. You know, broadside. Right. You don't want to force shots, but if you have a good shot, you need to take it. Yep. Big bucks do not hang around and make mistakes. 
they're going to pick up on you if they get close. They're not like having a door around you or a four corner. So uh, I ended up not getting the buck um, after several close calls, uh, seeing them a lot. And now I was like a madman. I was going to kill that thing for sure the next year. And I scoured every inch of that woods, found both of his sheds when he had that 140 class rack. And uh, I wanted to learn every single bedding area. Like I did my mindset after seeing how he came out of bedding, and that was my best opportunities. And I went and looked at him really close and learned them. And I learned about 30, 40 different bedding areas, really inside out. And I played with that thing the next year with Bo quite a bit. And it was a huge buck this year. That was an 89. Now he's, now he's got this huge rack. And I was thinking he grew 12 points. He was still a 10-pointer, but his brow times were um, they're 11 and 9 and a half or 9 and 3 quarters. Oh, wow. So they're like two 10-inch brow times. So when they, they went up so high, it looked like two more points on the rack. I thought he had a 12-point rack, um, which is his, his brow times the year before were only three inches, three or four. Yeah, it's crazy to see such a jump there. Yeah. So now he has about a 170-inch buck. And I really wanted him, and I hopped around with the bow, and uh, I was seeing him, but it was a lot harder than the year before. It was like he, he he grew into that age class where they get really smart. And I got all through the uh, bow season without getting a crack at him. When gun season came, uh, it was shotgun back in those days, I decided I was going to sneak into every bedding area and just walk into the bedding areas until I jumped him and killed him. So I started sneaking into those bedding areas, and deer would run out, and I started learning what mistakes I was using or making. I started learning that they were watching downwind, so I started coming in on a crosswind and sneaking and sneaking and sneaking or coming in in a way that if they escaped, I'd have a shot. And uh, I didn't get them, didn't get them, didn't get them, and it got to be Thanksgiving Day, and there was only a couple spots left that were way out. And uh, I was losing faith, but I kept with the plan, and I kept doing it. And there's this one spot where there's this little hill overlooking this draw that was full of dogwood and red brush and had some old cars in it. And it was surrounded by grass. And I was thinking, how, how could I go in there? It was, there was a lot of big rubs in there when I scouted it and a lot of big beds. So I was thinking, well, that's a, that could very well be holding them. I thought, well, if I got up on top of that hill, I can see escape routes all the way around it. So that was my best avenue. So I got on that hill and I got real close. If you stepped into there, you wouldn't be able to see anything because it was just thick willow and dogwood and stuff, right? So while I was up high, I took rocks and I threw them, and I, so I finally hit the hood of one of the cars, the old cars that were in there. And when I hit that car, that buck jumped up and he erupted out of there. And, uh, you know, being a young young guy, uh, all excited, I started unloading the gun at him. <laughs> then I realized I wasn't hitting him. And uh, the last shot, I took close aim and shot and, and uh, still missed him. He never, never missed a beat, kept running and running and running. I'm like, oh, I couldn't believe I just unloaded the gun on him and didn't touch him. And I was feeling like an idiot. Like, I worked so hard for that point and blew it. And I got down, went down there, walked in, looked at the bed, and it was right where it was supposed to be, you know, from the year before. I followed his trail out of there, followed up the hill, and there's a little sprinkle of snow on the, on the ground. And as I was going up, I saw red on the snow. I looked, and all sorts of blood spray everywhere. I realized that last shot did connect. He just didn't flinch. And then from that spot, I flung my head around and looked, you know, like the blind spot from where I was on the hill. And there he laid. Oh, nice. And uh, 
to, to this day, I mean, that, that was just a huge accomplishment. And that's probably the buck that turned my whole direction towards the way I, I hunt today, you know. That's a great story. And I have a, a few follow-up questions because I know people are, are they want to really dig deep in the details, and, and you did provide a lot of details. But I think one thing that maybe is not clear to people, when you when you have a target buck, and it sounds like you had a single buck you were after, how big of a, a radius or what, what kind of area were you looking in? How many miles, how many acres were you trying to find all these different bedding areas in? Uh, that buck, um, I would say he lived in about a square mile of property. I don't think he ever left. But there was other bucks in that same property that would be there a few days, gone a few days, or you'd, you'd, you'd see him there, and then you shine him two miles down the road. So... A lot of these deer are different, and, I, and it doesn't have to do with the properties. It has to do with their personalities, just like kind of people. You, you know, like some guys can take a road as an, uh, a job as an over-the-road trucker and only home every other weekend or something, and some guys could never live like that, and they work across the street, and their wife never leaves the house, doesn't drive, you know. Every person is different, you know, and so are deer. So you got to look at personalities for that. And uh, that's part of the, you know, when you hunt trophy bucks, that's something you got to realize. I mean, when you're hunting one single deer, there might be a certain way he comes through a certain woodlot. That's the way that deer does it. And if you're not on his route, you're not going to kill him. And if he did, like the guy you mentioned earlier, he's seen a buck get up in the middle of the day and, and move on a regular basis. Well, it's the Achilles heel you're looking for. That doesn't mean every buck that beds there is going to do the same thing. You know, so you kind of got to learn an animal. That's a good segue. My next follow-up question was, you said specifically after the second and third year that you were just obsessed with learning this area. So talk about uh, over the, you know, I'm assuming it was winter and spring after season. What were you doing? Because it sounds like this is the time frame when you're really getting into investigating beds. And I think that'll translate really well to a lot of people that are, you know, one, two, three years in on the beast. Talk about that evolution a little bit. What did you first start seeing, and and how did you start putting those pieces together and figuring out, hey, this is the ticket here? I, I guess at first I was probably a lot like beast members. I'd just find a bedding area. I'd, I'd see the beds. I'd see the rubs and stuff around them, and I'd get excited, and I'd look for a setup. But I think, um, you know, over time, and over looking at them for years, I've evolved to where I'm looking at it, trying to figure out what time of the year he's there, why he's there, what wind he'd be there on. You, you know, more asking a lot more questions and trying to make sure it's the buck I'm after that's bedding there instead of just general deer, per se. So, I mean, the evolution is, is still going on. I mean, it was only probably... Uh, you know, maybe five, six years ago, maybe seven years ago that I discovered really what's going on with rut beds, you know, and how bucks bed with, with rut. Talk about that a little. What, what do you mean there specifically? Like you figured out rut beds. How, how is that different than, say, the stuff you're hunting early season? There, there's a type of bedding that uh, that we figured out that bucks are doing where, they, um, where they're monitoring those. So... We were finding a lot of um, bedding areas that were like, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but occasionally we'd find bedding areas where the bed would be very hard to see. Sometimes you could just barely make out where the deer was bedding, which tends to be, you know, a horrible spot to hunt. 
you know, when you find the spots that have one bed only, even if it's a worn bed, if it's only one bed, it's usually not a good balance. Every occasionally one single bed works out, but usually it's a series of beds in an area, you know. But what we'd find is one bed, not very much wear, but rubs all the way around it, heavy rubs. And it would always be adjacent to a dough bedding area, not necessarily downwind or upwind or anything else, but it, it would be usually observing a trail coming out of the bedding. Okay. We started hunting deer like that. Now, uh, one that really taught us a lot was one that me and Mario were hunting, uh, this big buck. And there's a doe bedding area and a little tiny island adjacent to it. And the does would come out and you'd watch these bucks get up out of their beds and come after them. And then one thing I always do is if I see a big buck during the season come out of an area, whether I kill it or I don't kill it or whatever, I go back and find out why after the season. Why was he there? What was going on? And we went back to that one and checked it out. And here was that type of bed again. You know, and you get down in that bed and you can look at the exit that the does are coming out of that bedding area. Look where they're going across. And that that buck was watching those does and then getting up and running after him. And since then, and scouting a lot of a lot of properties and, and for people and for myself, I started finding more and more of these. And I started thinking back to ones I found that I didn't really put two and two together. Went back and revisited them. And I'm seeing a trend here. We're right in that, uh, you know, kind of pre-rut time period of like uh, around Halloween, very early November. I find these things setting and waiting and watching the does where they bed, like monitoring them, making sure no mother bucks are getting there, and then letting them bed there un- unharassed, but when they get up to leave, they're on them. And, and uh, that's been something that's really been uh, – I've been keying in on lately. Oh, that's, a, that's a great explanation. I appreciate that. And are, are you seeing these areas then that you're, you're calling like these rut bedding areas, are these probably the most uh, heavily marked up sign-wise then as far as rubs and, and scrapes? Yeah, so, so so I don't know. They're usually just scrapes adjacent to them, but it's usually where they go to when they're following the does. So the scrape is usually a good spot to hunt generally, uh, actually, as long as it's not in view of the bed, which it is sometimes. So a lot of times there's just a heavy amount of rubs around the beds, right in the bed, you know, like right on the bed, like the trees all around will be thrashed. And it's just that they're aggressive with the does, you know, and they're marking their territory. They don't want any other bucks getting near that, that doe. So it's one of the things you can just kind of keep your eyes out for. Cause a lot of times, if you're like me, what I was seeing was I was seeing the torn up beds and, you know, torn up uh, rubs around a bed and the beds hardly used. And you think, ah, worthless. So a buck bedded there once and ripped the area up. But then you start to think about it. If that buck only bedded there for four or five days and did that much rubbing, it meant a lot to him for some reason, you know, and he said to put two and two together with that, that rut bedding. And that bed is useless all year until that week of pre-rut. So you find one of those and that's the spot to hunt that last week of October. That's where he's going to be. I, I want to tie that back into something we talked in earlier was maybe hunting bedding areas without a lot of sign. So going back now to bedding areas with a lot of sign, I think, and maybe you'll agree, there's probably two conclusions you can draw. Either that's a two-year-old bedding area or that's a or that's a rut bedding area for a better buck, right? And I think maybe the, the, the rubs would help give you an idea if it's bigger, taller rubs, bigger trees, maybe they, maybe lean more towards that, you know, rut bedding area versus a two-year-old area. 
right? It's, it's also a timing issue. You, you know, you can you can find a pretty good bedding area that's got good sign that's not a two-year-old bedding area, that's not a rut bedding area, if there's multiple bucks that want to bed there. You know, you, you just have to, you know, if, they, if they're doing it as competition, you know, to, to keep other bucks bedding there or whatever, to or like a, like we said earlier, where the tank top, you know, inflects their muscles at each other. So they, they're going to, um, if, if there's multiple bucks using it, they're going to rub it rub it up. So there's a multiple reasons, but what you're going to find in most good buck bedding areas that have rubs is lots of beds, not one, lots of beds. The, the, the best bedding areas that I hunt don't have a bed or two beds, which is what, ironically, you hear a lot of online. And maybe I'm at fault for that a little bit because in the past I've done some videos where you show a single bed, you walk to it and you go, here's where they're bedding kind of thing. But really, there's usually a bunch of beds around that area. And usually, usually a mature buck's bedding area has got, let's say, two dozen beds in an area the size of uh, 50 yards by 20 yards maybe, you okay. know, or 20 yards square. Um, and they'll shift around based on the wind or whatever, you know, and they'll have different beds for, you know, different reasons they'll get up and move and shift so when you find a single bed it's a whole different story usually those don't pan off but when i say that i say that with a grain of salt because my biggest buck ever came from a single bed there, there's certainly no always and never in deer hunting is there oh right right there, there's not there's not so when you find this single bed that's hardly worn you know a buck beds in a spot a lot that bed is going to be worn so you find this bed and it's hardly worn. Well, when you're looking at them in spring, it's not going to look like much if he was bedding there for one week in November. Like I said, you can hardly see the bed, right? Yep. But that week in November is probably tore up as hell. You know, it looked it looked like pretty good. You know, that's a whole thing with with bed hunting is getting the timing down. The better I get with timing, the better I get with killing deer. So when you can start figuring out, well, this is you know this is like this because this is rut. He's using this in rut. This one ain't got no rubs, but it's got multiple beds and tons of beds. And I think mature bucks are using it. There's just no rubs there at all. Man, they don't seem very competitive. Maybe they're bedding there before the end of October. Maybe early seasons is the time I need to be there. Maybe it's like they're bedding around acorns or something, right? And, you know, and if there's a lot of rubs in there, maybe it's, you know, rut time is the time to hunt there, you know, and there's, there's some things you have to think about. You have to look at the food sources near a bedding area, you, you know, Timing is the hugest thing, and when you can look at a bed and start to decipher, well, I think this is being used just during that week of rut, and that's why it's like this, that's going to be a huge payoff for you is when you start to read them like that. Yeah, I think you've provided some great nuances there, and if people are struggling to to kind of identify the time of the season when those bucks are bedding in there, if they go back and listen to what you just said about look at the rubs, was the bed you know, only worn like the deer was there a week or is there a bunch of beds and not a lot of rubs like maybe before they got competitive, there's there's a lot to take away right there and, and some real good information that's that kind of experience stuff that you've picked up over the years. So I'd, I'd recommend people definitely go back and listen to that. When I really just first started getting into more the, the timing phase where, where I got to a point where I started to realize timing was so huge with the bedding, I started to look back at old journals and stuff and you start to see a trend like, holy crap, I would just randomly hunt this bedding area three times a year. Once early season, once rut, once late season. And I thought, you know, I was hunting, I was shooting these deer 
you know, rut and early season. And really, when you look at the dates, it was really all around one week of mid-October. And you start to look at it and, holy crap, according to this journal, every deer I saw that was worth a shit out of that bedding area was that week. You learn that that's the week you have to hunt there. And really, a lot of these bedding areas have a one-week period that they're peak. And when you get that week down and you understand that, you really get good. One thing a guy can do is he can set a trail camera on the exit trails. Don't put them in a bedding area, but set it on the exit trail. Just leave it for a season and see what comes out of that bedding area when. And start to put the timing thing together. And then relate that back to what you're seeing and think about, well, okay, how does that relate to the sign I'm seeing? What does the sign tell me? You know, those rubs look like they were during the rut or they look so old that they're from early season. You know, does this look like that? You know, and start to put the, you know, be the detective. Really decipher when are they going to be here? Why are they going to be here? What when are they going to be on here? You know, could they even be here later? Is there enough cover? You know, start to put two and two together, and and you know, that timing thing is just so huge. Yeah, I don't want to tie that back into something you said earlier, which was take three days to scout. And if you take three days to scout, that's just to me, that's just like leaving a trail camera on an exit of a bedding area soaking all season you're making an investment that's going to pay off the rest of your deer hunting career but you're giving up a little this year that's a great way to put it you know invest now because if you're serious about deer hunting which i think pretty much everybody on the hunting beast is it's not like you're just hunting this year or next year you're going to probably be doing it as long as you can so the sooner you make those investments the, the sooner you can start reaping those rewards yeah one other thing um actually it's kind of a segue we talked about timing and how you're you know really capitalizing on timing that's going to lead in i want to talk about what you're doing this year and this was a hunting beast question this person writes last season was a tough one for dan where he had some opportunities at really nice bucks what will he do this season to ensure he capitalizes on the opportunities that he has Hmm. you know i'd like to tell you last year doesn't matter i'm only worried about the future but i'd be lying because there, there's a little part of me that has a little ego that says, oh, yeah, you can't do that to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I want to go out and kill one. Right. And right now I'm str- I'm struggling with going out and just shooting a nice buck and then moving on and hunting some other states and stuff and, and just having fun and holding out for one of the giants that I'm onto. I'm struggling between the two things. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I'll probably know better when the deer's standing underneath me. <laughs> but, uh, and that might that might sound like I'm making excuses already, but it's just really just me. Um, and I'll be okay with whatever I do. It's just the way I am. But I do have some really big bucks that I'm on to. Uh, one or two in particular that I've been hunting for a few years straight that uh, I would really love to get, but I also know that my odds are really stacked against me because of where they live. But uh, one of them I've been watching already. He, he's a really nice buck. I haven't got a close-up look at him this year, but I've seen him several times shining. Just checking on him, but he's still there. Uh, I've been hunting him for three years. He looked like he was mature three years ago when I ran into him. So it's a really good deer then. Yeah, I don't know how old he is. Uh, I got dozens of trail camera pictures of him last year, and he gave me fits. I walked up on him a couple times, kicked him out of his bed. He's a 12-frame. I'm hoping he still has that this year. He might be going downhill. But uh, that deer I'd really like to kill. Um, I think I figured out a couple puzzles, uh, pieces to the puzzle in spring, but they're not big pieces. 
the thing is living where it's almost impossible to kill them just in solid water and cattails and muck. I mean, there's hardly any trees. So I'm really struggling at how to kill them, but I've got some, some plans, some ideas, and I'm going to give it a solid infault effort. But I might shoot a different nice buck if one comes in, just knowing how hard the effort is. But we'll see. I don't think anybody's going to blame you there. So this next question, and this is a me question, so so don't beat me up too bad. And I mean this with all due respect. The last few years, uh, it appears your shooting may have cost you a buck or two. Have you focused on your shooting more this year? Uh, I've always been a horrible shot. It's been one of my biggest downfalls. And uh, I was having some issues um, with the bow I had last year in particular and the year before. Right now, Forge is out of business. I told him my issues. He called me, uh, asked me how things were going. We are talking about going bear hunting. Uh, as I don't know if everybody knows it, but uh, he retired. He closed down his business. He no longer sells bows or anything like that. Okay. Um, but he, uh, I told him those uh, problems I was having, and uh, he always takes my bows and fixes them up for me. He uh, he sponsored me for years, not because he had to, because he wanted to. He never sponsored much of anybody else. But uh, he's uh, building me a new bow. <laughs> he just decided to do that. He said, "You got to have a longer axle than axle." So he called me up uh, last weekend, uh, said he has something he wants me to come try. So I'm going to go try it. Uh, I need something a little longer axle to axle, a little more forgiving. My last bolt before the one I had from him, when I shoot that bolt, it was like an extension of my arms. And I pull the bolt back, I'd be aimed at what I'm shooting. It was just, uh, I was in sync. There's just something I wasn't in sync with this bolt. Like, you know, I could shoot just fine. But it wasn't that instinct feeling. If anything was a little off or you're tweaked a little bit, my shooting would be affected. Sure, if you're standing up shooting at a target, I, was, I would hit bullseye every time. But there's something about just being in a, a different position or, you know, something with me. So I'm trying to tweak that, and uh, I got a lot of shooting to do because the season's going to open soon. But, um, yeah, I do have a problem with my shooting. I've never been a good shot. I don't see very well, and I see my vision uh, – my vision problems are getting worse and worse with age, and I'm starting to see it affect my uh, my shooting. I'm having a hard time seeing the pins and stuff. I'm having a hard time reading and stuff now. Age sucks, man. Yeah, I wear, <laughs> I wear glasses, and, and things are definitely getting blurrier for me too, so I can relate. Yeah, I wasn't, like I said, wasn't trying to pick on you there. i just just curious. No, no, I get that. You know, uh, that's on the back of my mind too. Um, that That's an issue I have, and uh, I mean – you, you, you know, you got to look at it like this, too. And, again, this is probably getting beat up, and I don't really care what people think, you know, if they're that opinionated. But when you look at people, there are people who really focus on their shooting. They become great shots. They split arrows. Um, they can shoot out to 60 yards and hit targets. I'm not that guy. They love their bows. They love their shooting. They love all that. That's not me. I have to push myself to go practice and stuff. Because if I have time, what do I want to do? I want to go out in the woods and I want to learn the deer. I want to, you know, you know what I mean? Yep. So I got to make myself practice. So there's a two different kinds of guys. I'm just all about scouting and getting on the deer. So I'm getting on deer constantly, and then my shooting things are causing me to, to blow a, a few opportunities. But on the other hand, um, I used to hunt with a guy who was a, a professional archer. That guy could could drop an arrow in a diamond <laughs> fifty yards. No problem. 
if he if he got out of his range finder and rage find it, he could, he could hit a hundred yard target right on. Um, I couldn't. But you put that guy in a in a tree, he couldn't he couldn't put a hit a hay bale if you put if you put an antler rack on it. <laughs> uh, he he wounded deer every time out, and I I could never understand that because he uh, was such a good shot. But you know, uh, some people are into their shooting, some people are into their scouting and stuff. I have to force myself to be better, and I have to work on my shooting. And I understand that. Um, I probably should go out and get a rangefinder so I can shoot a little further. I've always limited my shooting to like. Uh, 20 or 30 yards, 30 kind of the max. But uh, every now and then I I try to push that out a little further. I know the range finders definitely saved me a few times. I know it's one more gadget to carry in the woods, and, and you're not a big gadget guy, but, boy, that one that one seems mm-hmm. like it's worth the wait there. Yeah. Well, the, to close things out here, I kind of want to talk about uh, what you think your your legacy is or what it's going to be and that this whole segment I got five or six questions here will kind of be focused on that because just my opinion but you are one of the most well-respected and recognized names in bow hunting right now and I think that's because you're you know you are such a giving positive person a positive influence you know you haven't sold out to sponsors and, and nothing against people that are getting sponsors right like we talked about earlier people got to pay bills mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff but so the, this first question, this came in from the Hunting Beast uh, thread about questions to ask Dan. I thought it was a good one. Have you killed your biggest buck in the past, or is it still to come? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would like to think it's still to come. I've had, uh, over the years, opportunities at that once-in-a-lifetime buck several times, and I've never got it. It's always Something's always happened, whether it was the bear bait buck or it was uh, – giant 200 inch typical in iowa you, you know or one of the other ones uh, i've hunted some incredible bucks that for whatever reason those are the ones i didn't get i'd still like to get one of those just absolute you know monsters sure um, but you know really it doesn't matter as long as i'm in the game and chase them i've come to realize that that's really what i'm i'm looking for um Every deer I've ever killed, every accomplishment I've ever made has been something I've really, really wanted. And when I've got it, it isn't good enough. I'm after the next goal. So I don't think it matters if I if I shoot that buck or I don't. I'm still after the next one. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, even if you got the 200 entry, you'd be, you'd be after the 160 or whatever was around next year. <laughs> right, but I, I don't know. Um I'd like to think that I'm going to kill a bigger buck yet, uh, bigger than I've, I've killed so far. And I think a lot of people would believe that that could definitely happen. Yeah, and I think the bucks are getting bigger too. Um, you, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is when I killed the majority of the, the big bucks that I've killed, it wasn't times like today <laughs> when there's, when there's uh, giants all over the place. You get into the Midwest, and, and it really is. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, they, they were spread out and far apart. But I was I was killing them because of driving, you know, sheer drive and determination. Um, and I, you, you know, you lose a little of that with age. And believe me, I'm noticing what your guy writing this question is is asking. I'm noticing it in myself that, you, you know, I'm going longer and further apart on killing these giants. You know, and. It, it, the drive is slipping away a little bit. The age is creeping in, and 
getting harder and harder every year. And uh, uh, I, I get to the season, I start thinking I can do things that uh, I used to do 30 years ago. And I try it once or twice, and I'm laying out in the swamp half dead, wondering how I'm going to get out of there <laughs> like the guy that was talking to me at the shop. Yeah. <laughs> and reality sets in. But I do think I uh, I have a big advantage over the younger me, and um, and I know a lot more now. So I got I got to work on what I learned from the years of my um, killing them by sheer determination, and and putting what I learned from those years into play. And I think I think uh, there's a giant in my future. Well, it sounds like you're on to some good runs this year. So so hopefully this year will be the year. Yeah. The next question I want to ask is, what do you want your legacy to be as, uh, both as a deer hunter and kind of a public figure representative of deer hunting? What do you want it to be? Uh, can you say that again? Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be as a deer hunter or public figure? Uh, my legacy, uh, I would like to be known for you know, helping a lot of young people become better hunters. That's about it. That's really, really all I'm looking for. Now, I know this is a hard question to, to answer, but do you think it will be any different than what you want? And, and if so, why? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think if I die, people will forget about me pretty quick. And I don't think it really matters. I think, uh, most people are wrapped up in themselves, you know, just thinking about, uh, where they become, you, you see a lot of guys that uh, like come onto the beast and uh, never killed much or whatever. They learn a lot of things. They ask a lot of questions. They start getting good. They disappear. They go, <laughs> they go somewhere and they start their own legacy and they become some big hunter, some place. And and uh, you never hear mention of a guy like me again, you know. Um, and I think I think there's a lot of that, and which is fine because I'm not looking for the really the acknowledgement out of it. And it's a lot of questions kind of weird to me. I'm not really looking for a legacy, but I think personally, I think my goal inside me is to, that you, you really get one chance in this earth. And what we should all be looking at is in our short time here, making a difference, putting a dent in the side of the earth and doing something positive. And I just want to feel like if I was here, that I made an influence. I don't have to be recognized for it. I don't have to, um, uh, have people uh, when I'm long gone dead and don't know the difference saying my name or anything else. Um, just for me personally, I think that every person should be trying to make this world better than when they came into it. And uh, the whole world would be better if we were all doing that. I just, I think that, you know, did you ever hear of a Black Lives Matter guy that was going out starting all these riots and, and, and attacking white people? The one that was a deer hunter? No. I never heard of that one either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, deer hunters is just, they're good people. If you, if you raise your kids up hunting, they're better people. You learn about life and death. You learn about God. I mean, how can you sit in the tree stand and look at nature and look at how it's, everything works together and how just every function of every animal is built for a reason and not believe in God. How can you go out there and not feel better? I mean, People who hunt, they're better people. It's what we're meant to do. People weren't meant to be put on this earth to um, go to grocery stores and get their food. We're built to hunt and kill our food and eat, you know, and live off the land and grow it. And that's what we're here for. And you're better 
a better person and better in sync. And I'm trying to keep the whole tradition of hunting alive. And when I really started this, I said what I wanted to see was I wanted to stop the trend of the TV hunting, the um, the deer farming. I didn't want to really stop that. I'm okay with that, and I, and I like it. So don't take that wrong, but I wanted to bring back woodsmanship. Now I use that term. I mean, that used to be a common term when I was a kid. People don't even know what the term is. They'll, they'll say, what does that mean? Woodsmanship, I mean, being able to go out and understand the woods, read it, understand it, not just for deer, but everything about it, you know, being able to survive out there, you, you know, being able to harvest uh, plants, nuts, mushrooms, uh, fish, hunt. I would like to see people continue that trend. And I think when you see these young kids watch these shows and stuff and think that you sit on the side of a field and you kill giant bucks, going out there and failing and failing and failing, you only fail so much and you give up. And what I want to do is I want to give those kids a hope so that they can live on after I'm gone and give other kids hope. And I want to, I want to keep that growing as hunting going on. And I think, I think I've, I've kind of succeeded. I, I think I see a trend coming back with public land hunting, with mobile hunting, with all the things I've been preaching for years that were really kind of forgotten about now are really coming back. And, you know, obviously that ain't all me, but I think I'm helping a lot of other people help other people. And I think I've made a difference. And I, at least I like to, in my mind, believe I've made a difference. No, I would I would agree a hundred percent. You're seeing uh, the, the trickle down through through a lot of other you know platforms and and shows and people that are out there right now that have been inspired by you or have, have acknowledged and given you credit for inspiration. So I would I would agree with that. And the things you said about making the world a better place and you know having a positive impact, I, I can't overstate how much I agree with that or how important I think that is too is you know make make the difference again going back be the change you want to see i think that's that's super important so a lot of good insights there just food for thought people you know as sportsmen too especially to be good people and good representatives for the sport and, and keep it growing and try to try to avoid those divisions and that petty stuff that sometimes shows up on not the forum so much but out there in the broader world you know the facebook and stuff that that's not doing anybody right. anybody in in the outdoors any favors. So I no, appreciate that. And so so two more questions here, Dan. We'll wrap it up. And want to thank you right now for your time too. Definitely appreciate you coming on. This is my whole third episode here. So thanks for giving a new guy a chance. Appreciate that. So second to last question: Do you ever wish you could go back to being completely unknown? Yeah, I, I'm sure it crosses my mind, but I like who I am. I like what I'm doing. I think I'm making a difference. I, I think occasionally uh, people get to me. You, a minute ago, you were mentioning, you know, like the haters online and stuff. And I mean, really, I, I mean, you hear a lot of lot of negative comments. You hear people say awful things about you. And, um, you, you, you know, it gets to you. Like, all you want to do is help people. And then people just for no reason go out and attack you. And I, it's hard for me to fathom hunters being like that, you know. Um and when you hear enough of that crap, after a while, you start you start getting in your mind that everybody's like that, you know. But um, just about the time you think that, you get some message from somebody out there telling you how much you've done to help them, you know, and tell you about the buck they got because you helped them. And uh, then you come back to reality and think, well, I'm, I'm helping a lot more people than that. You just the trouble with it with human nature is you only hear the negative, you know. 
you know, cure the positives. Sure, it's just like the big bucks that get away, right? Those those stick with you, and then the ones on the wall you kind of forget about. Right, exactly. And last question, what do you imagine hunting will be like in 20 years, or what do you hope it's like in 20 years? Well, uh, I, I hope we still have some public land to hunt on, number one. I, I hope um, the conservatives stay in office so that this whole world doesn't go upside down. Not that I want to say anything about politics. It's just that hunting-wise, I think we need that. But I would really hope that uh, this public land trend, this mobile trend, this uh, people growing as hunters. The other trend I see with um, some of these new young people trying to eat healthier and live off of uh, wild game. I hope those trends keep moving forward. I hope more and more people keep making platforms, kind of like yourself, where you're helping people grow. There's really been a trend to that lately, and there's, you know, kind of a newfound thing with these podcasts, with uh, people being able to easily put up um, web pages or Facebook pages and stuff, and I think just a lot of people helping. What I'd like to see, though, different is I would like to see a trend of people policing the negativism that we were just talking about a minute ago. I'd like to see more people call out the people who are negative and just stop them in their tracks, you know. That's one of the things that's been great about um, the forum me and you share, the hunting beast, is that we will not allow any of that negativism, even if we like a guy. I mean, if you're going to be an ass, you're gone. That's all there is to it. And it has to be that way, or, you know, that young kid who's shy ain't going to be able to ask a question. If he's going to get beat up and, and made fun of by the answer. And you can't see that on, like, Facebook. I mean, a guy just puts a, a post up on, uh, like, uh, should I use this for scent control? And he, you just see guys bashing them, guys making fun of them. Guys, you know, and you just, I mean, why can't people just be nice, you know? Yeah, yep. And you're not you're not doing that guy any favors. I mean, if you're trying to help out your fellow sportsman, then, then take the time to answer or don't say anything. Yeah. Well, any last words, Dan? No, I just uh, want to say that uh, you're doing a good job with your podcast. This is uh, it's pretty cool. I thought you asked some good questions, and I thought we had some good conversation here. This is pretty cool. Hey, I appreciate you coming on again, and always a pleasure to speak with you. I want to say, you know, in closing, so pre-hunting beast, and I, I don't want to talk about myself at all here until the very end, but but I joined the Hunting Beast in 2013, and I'd, I'd killed a few bucks with my bow. And, you know, from Michigan, one 100-inch buck. Since the Hunting Beast, I think I've killed a buck almost every year, and I've killed two Pope and Youngs. The first one was in southern Ohio and hill country, and I had knew absolutely nothing prior to the Hunting Beast about how to hunt hills. And my friend down there had, had actually hunted this property for like eight years and was always telling me, got all these bucks on camera, and he hunted the low lands with bait. So you can guess what happened there. So the the the, <laughs> the first day we were there, I scouted around and and found an area. By noon that day, I had seen a shooter buck. And the following morning at daylight, I shot my first Pope and Young, 100% attributed to the hunting beast, what I learned on hill country, what I learned about reading fresh sign. And last year, I, I killed my second one. And again, 100% attributed to the hunting beast and all the lessons I've learned on there. So you are making a difference and. I can say personally, sincerely appreciate it. Keep fighting the good fight, Dan. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. We'll catch you later, and, and thanks again. All right. Bye. Bye.